0: He is a minister of the gospel, a published author, and the leader of a Christian media ministry. His name is Pastor Deblier Snell. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is our conversation. Pastor W. Snell, thank you for joining me today.
1: Hey, I'm glad to be here. It's it's good to connect, and glad to be here in Collegeville. A- and connect again. We can go. We go. We go
0: back a few years. Well, we were mm-hmm. pastors in the same town. Yep. Uh, just a little up the road from each other, and and it's funny how God works things out. Yep. So today, you are the new speaker and director of Breath of Life, mm-hmm. a media ministry. Yep. Let's talk about Breath of Life a little. Then we'll backtrack and then we'll forward track. So Breath of Life, tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So Breath of Life is one of the uh, legacy me- media ministries. It has a tremendous tradition. Um, it was, you know, the vision uh, concept of uh, Elder Walter RTS in the mid 70s. And so the first official speaker was the legendary evangelist uh, Charles Brooks. And uh, so he led the ministry for a number of years. He was then succeeded uh, by Elder Walter Pearson, uh, who led the ministry for over, I think, almost 15 or 20 years. And then for the last 12 years, Dr. Carlton Bird has functioned as the speaker and director of Breath of Life. And here back in, in August, they asked me to take over that responsibility as he transitioned into church administration. Fantastic. Well, God knows what he's doing. Let's back up. You're a minister of the
0: gospel. How did that happen? Let me talk about your, your background, where you're from, were mm. you raised in church. What was that? What was that all about?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, that's kind of where I was born and raised. Um, but I tell people growing up, I was uh, part of the CME church, meaning we went to church on Christmas, Mother's Day, and <laughs> Easter. Like, <laughs> there you go. That was our religious yeah. experience. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because, you know, I grew up Uh, There in the South, a part of a number of different cycles that the gospel uh, was able to shatter when it entered into my life. And so what I mean when I say that I was in a single parent home at the time, Uh, my mom and uh, myself, we kind of lived back and forth with my grandmother. And so our house was a very blended house. So my other aunts and their kids, my first cousins, we lived in and out of the same space. And so my mom is a single mom. She would go out on the weekends and I would spend a lot of time with my grandmother and my cousins. And there she met my, my stepfather out one weekend. Now I say stepfather, but we don't use that term because he essentially raised me, mm. uh, you know, especially from, you know, being 12 and, and going forward. Now the amazing thing about how God works is they kind of meet out, kind of living the life, so to speak. Now while they were coming together in North Florida and Tallahassee, my dad's mom was coming to the end of her work season in South Florida, which was in Fort Pierce, Florida. So what happened is she lived next door to an Adventist lady named Helen. Helen would begin talking to my grandmother, who is a devout Baptist, about um, the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Talked to her about the Sabbath and the second coming. And, I, and they've shared with me how they would have these really intense conversations because grandma was really devout in what she believed. But, man, the, the truth of God's word is just overwhelming and powerful for anybody that's earnestly seeking. So essentially what happens is she joins the Seventh-day Adventist Church in South Florida. When she retired, um, she moved to North Florida in Tallahassee to be near uh, the kids who had many of them had migrated toward that area at that time. So when she comes, she's got like the message of the third angel hot on her tongue. And it's amazing how kind of, you know, things providentially worked. Um, you know, the world was beginning to lose its sweetness for my parents Around the same time when she came. So she came and and she was really adamant about, you know, kind of really bringing her family into the church, seeing them develop roots in Christ. And so I remember like one Saturday morning um, I was sitting there watching cartoons, eating my cereal. And it was great because, you know, cereal just tastes better on Saturday morning. Sure. Oh, and yeah. uh, and so they said, we're going to church. And I remember kind of, you know, being a little bit of a smart aleck and saying, nope, you got the wrong day. You go to church on Sundays. And they said, no, we're going today. And so we got into kind of a a sporadic habit of attending. So we would go maybe every other month, kind of shift it to maybe once a month, maybe every other week. And then we got into a rhythm of attending uh, church on Sabbath. And so I remember the elders coming by uh, the house and they would study the Bible with my parents. Uh, And I remember at the time they would study the Bible with me as well. And they were very patient because I would ask questions that kind of, you know, showed them that I didn't really grow up around the Bible. So you ask these odd questions about sure. God and yep. and it would kind of throw them off, but we would have a great time with it. Um, but the long and short of it is, I remember my mom uh, and my dad, they eventually got married as they were settling into the tr- church. Then um, we wind up getting baptized together. My mom, my dad, there was a first cousin of mine and an uncle. We all got baptized into the Maranatha seven day Adventist church there in Tallahassee together. And one of the beautiful things about it, John, was I was able to see Bible conversion up close and personal mm. um, so that even when people talk about the phoniness of religion at times, that doesn't resonate with me because it was a very authentic thing that I was able to witness and experience personally. What did so, you
0: witness? What did you see?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, just it was a radical life radical life shift. So my parents, young marriage and relationship that was kind of volatile. As Christ filled up their lives, I began to see it normalize and become a lot more fruitful. The the language in the home radically shifted, um, you know, where there was the presence of alcohol or cigarettes or maybe marijuana. Those things begin to disappear, disappear. You know, the frustration, the the anger, frustration lines my dad would have, you know, his countenance changed as his life was filled up with the presence of the Holy Spirit. But you
0: you're so real.
1: Holy Spirit transformation, Holy Spirit change. I mean, and it was radical. I mean, there are pictures of my mom and, and we laugh about it where she's just decked out in, in jewelry and, and different things and how, you know, she embraced the principles of modesty uh, as we, we settled in, into the truth of God's word. And so, you know, as we you know matriculated into church, you know, dad began serving as a deacon in training. He eventually became a head deacon and and he you know became an ordained elder in the church. And my mom, you know, same thing, deaconess, community service leader. And and it's amazing because like, you know, um, this lady named Helen, whom I've never met, she was able to lead my grandmother into the faith. She led many of her children and grandchildren. Uh, I wound up becoming a pastor by the grace of God. If, before Jesus comes, I want to lead thousands to the kingdom of God. And it's amazing how a number of those stars in many ways will be accredited to the crown of a right, lady named Helen that's that, right who did not sit on the truth of the gospel but was liberal with sharing it with those who were in her sphere of influence
0: yeah fantastic so somewhere along the line mm-hmm. you be you 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 got this idea in you that you were going to be a minister of the gospel mm-hmm. where did where did that how did that 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 burden originate within you
1: yeah so it was uh it was definitely a progression so you know so when we get into the church like you know just like young people like they they our church they really and made real investments in the young people. Oh, they did. So I was a junior deacon, a junior usher, sometimes against my will, active in AYS. So we did skits and plays. And so I remember there would be times i will be 14, 15, and, and there would be people that said, you know, I think, you know, you're going to be a, a pastor. And when you're kind of 15, you don't really know what to do with that. Cause sure. it's like you're, you know, you're new to church world and life, and you're still trying to figure it out. Uh, and there were times where, and I didn't really take it seriously To I think my parents said, you know, we see something rare. And I'm like, what are you seeing? Mm. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, you can't process that as, as a teenager. Um, but the long and short of it is um, I was kind of set um, there in Tallahassee to go to one of the local universities, Florida State University. That's where my mom worked uh, her entire career. That's kind of where I worked in the summer times growing okay. up. So I was like, you know, that's where I was going to head. Going to going to study English um, there at Florida State University. That, that's what I was going to do. Um, so the long and short of it, there was a good friend of mine. He's also a pastor. And that wasn't his plan, by the way. Uh, Bron Jacobs. He came home from boarding academy at Forest Lake Academy. He said, listen, man, I just went to Oakwood for college days. He's like, man, we got to go. We can be roommates. We can get out of the house. You know, so we're, I'm I'm thinking about different things. So, you know, we go up to Huntsville to visit Oakwood for their alumni weekend. And I can't really explain it. You know, I didn't have the spiritual faculties at the time to kind of realize what was happening. But there there was just this sense of providence. I just felt strangely drawn to the area, to the university and being a product of public school, seeing young people who were speaking and singing and doing skits for Christ, like in in that volume, that was like that was so foreign and so strange. Like I it was like another world. And and I was I had a sense that this is where I belong. And it's amazing how you kind of line things up. So even as I talk about my parents, how they developed their relationship and how they grew in church. But when they bought their first home, it's where they lived until they recently relocated to Huntsville to be near our family. Nice. They bought their first home, John, at two nine oh five Oakwood Drive. And when we kind of begin to put things together, we said this must be something, you know, providential to it. And so I wind up going to Oakwood and that's where just as a freshman, I began to really consider it, pray for it earnestly, you know, kind of independent of kind of my church and, you know, know, upbringing and those influences. And it was there probably toward the middle part of my first year where I just kind of came to that place of full surrender where I said, "Okay, God, wherever, whenever, whatever you tell me to do, I'm willing to do it. And it's, it's amazing how when I just kind of said, okay, I'm willing, the peace of God just settled upon me in a very rare and distinct fa- fashion. It was like the weight of 10,000 planets was lifted by just saying yes and, and saying I'm willing. And it became really, really clear probably my, my first year there at Oakwood.
0: What was your entry into ministry like? Culture shock, shock, easy, I mean, uh, natural? After, uh, I mean, after Oakwood, what happened after Oakwood? But let's get to where you enter into pastoral ministry.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I, uh, so after I finished Oakwood, I went to Andrews and, and I spent my two and a half years there at the seminary, had a tremendous experience. And so, one of the things that helped me, helped prepare me, one, was being active in our church growing up. So, we, you know, they didn't sit us on the sideline, they allowed us to get involved. Um, and so, you know, we attended church business meetings and i don't know if that was a good thing or not but you're right so i didn't have any what's the term i didn't have any misgivings i didn't see it as this glorious thing i understood just from watching some of the experiences growing up that you know that there is a there's rigor to it sure and and it's not everybody loves you it there's difficulty to leadership because i saw it uh you know just in our in our local church um and then I had a chance to kind of work as a pastoral intern in the uh, Praise Fellowship Seventh-day Adventist Church in South Bend while I was there at Andrews. And so that's where I was able to kind of get my my feet wet with some things. But uh, my first church in 2002, I was assigned to a two church district in Columbus and West Point, Mississippi. And so the one thing that was new was really small, rural church. Uh, right, sure. Yeah, that's a different really world. Well. And so it's a different world because like you come out of Andrews, right? So you come out of seminary and you're like a bottle rocket. You're like, yo, we're going to turn this city upside down for Jesus. Like you're rolling out in the spirit of the apostles. Like, yo, we're going to we're going to do it. And we're going to see this church fill up, man. And we're going to we're going to do this and that. And see, the thing about kind of small town life is just it's it's a little more laid back. Sure. It's you know, there, there's not that urgency. So kinda, of, you know, my energy didn't match the, you know, the energy of the town or the church culture at that time. So a big part of it is even though I had great members hardworking who loved the Lord who were willing to support, you know, I think probably the biggest adjustment was expectations. Whereas kind of what I thought would happen maybe in, you know, maybe four or five months, you know, those are things that took four years uh to see come to pass. And so I think it was it was great in the sense of you kind of come to an understanding that like this is this is work there. There is a grind to it. Um, and small church pastor in context, you do everything. Uh, so there are going to be times where you're going to be answering phones. You're going to be cleaning churches. I remember you know me and uh, about four teenagers. They're the, called the Liddell boys. We we painted and remodeled our fellowship hall. Nice. So, I mean, it's just it's where. And the good thing about it is that it really stretches the boundaries of your creativity. Um, Because, you know, how they say, you know, poverty is the mother of of invention. Um, But the same thing is that, you know, when you have when you don't have a whole lot of resources ministry wise, it really forces you to learn how to be creative and to do things without a large budget. So I remember our evangelistic uh, allotment from the conference would be like five hundred dollars for evangelism. And for the year for the year. Right. And and we would be like, okay, we're going to take it and and we're going to run with it. And so I think that I think that was one of the tremendous uh, takeaways was like, okay, if you can do something with um, with limited financial resources, once God allows you to steward a little bit more, uh, you've kind of gotten into a rhythm of kind of really stretching yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, somewhere along the way, you acquired some additional family members. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Today you have three beautiful children. Yes. A uh, husband of one wife. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you and Gianna met. Wait, 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 what's the story? <laughs> tell, tell me what. Tell me what you can tell me now.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, of course, everybody. I have a version, and she has a version. Yeah, right. Okay, somewhere so, in there is the truth. Yeah, somewhere in there is the truth. Yeah. But we first met. So my senior year at Oakwood, uh, it was her freshman year. So she actually worked in the religion department, and so that's where we kind of had a developed a friendly uh, kind of acquaintance. You know, that's how we became acquainted with each other. And so we would kind of see each other in passing. And I always thought she was very, very attractive. But I was a senior. She was a freshman and our our worlds were kind of heading in different directions. So I go to Andrews and um, providentially God arranged it to where after her second year at Oakwood, she uh, was doing a major in journalism, communications, photography. And Oakwood didn't have uh, a complete program. So she transferred She
0: transferred to Andrews. To Andrews. So yeah, yes. so by Look that at time, that, huh? yeah,
1: so she's a junior, senior now, and I'm in grad school. And so we had already had this really good friendship. And um, so kind of how it worked was when we were first, when she first came, I was connected with someone else she was at the same time. So we had this this friendly relationship where I was, uh, we referred to each other. I was her campus big brother. All <laughs> she right. Was, All right. Campus little sister. So whenever she needed a ride to the store, I had a car at the time we would go and we'd spend time and we would hang out. And we had this really, really great friendship. Um, But kind of as God kind of ordained, you know, the people I was connected to that began to dissolve. Same thing with her in. And it just cleared a path. Mm. And it was amazing because I only had probably about three months left before I was about to exit uh, the seminary. Mm -hmm. And so all of those other things were kind of removed and it was just kind of like a path was finally cleared and we connected uh, in a very, very powerful way um, for about two and a half months before I left Andrews. So the entirety of our relationship uh, was long distance. I was pastoring in Mississippi. Uh, She was finishing up her undergrad. And so we, we dated long distance for another year and a half. Uh, then I proposed shortly after she graduated and, Amen. and we were married eight months after that.
0: There you go. Yeah. Now, over the course of your marriage, mm. your wife has developed into a very talented photographer. What has, just tell me as, as you've seen that, you must be very proud of her, yeah. of, her of her abilities or her, her achievements. And you, you sort of seen that whole thing grow. Yeah. What, what's it been like watching that develop in your wife's, uh, your wife's talent? Um, clearly developing a
1: business growing, Mm -hmm. that's got to be a lot of fun to be up close and watch that. It is. And I think part of it is just kind of showing that, like, you know, everybody has to, you know, be loyal to process. Meaning she didn't just kind of step out and just start this, you know, photography business and studio. You know, she started out working at the, uh, you know, the the local newspaper in Mm -hmm. Lexington, in uh, Columbus, Mississippi, as a as a photojournalist. Um, I remember her working in Sears Portrait Studio. Right. um, There in Mississippi. Same thing when we moved to Kentucky, she would work with the local paper and do some different things based on assignment here and there. But it's amazing because everything had a purpose, whether it was kind of understanding people, whether it was getting familiar with deadlines, whether it was getting familiar with photo editing or whether kind of how to operate and how to function in a studio. Um, God has amazing ways of training and preparing us. So she had to go through that process. But God kind of set it up to where when we arrived in Huntsville, uh, we were able to have a an 11 year tenure at our current church. So she was able to develop, again, a part of the process, a a strong clientele uh, for our first few years there. And it created enough of interest and enough of a base for her to launch uh, her studio, Gianna Snell Photography. And it's amazing. Her, her uh, many of her uh, photos have gone viral several times over. Matter of fact, some of her work was actually displayed on the Steve Harvey show, um, Fantastic. maybe about three or four years ago. And yeah. So it's it's been a process. And she certainly, for lack of a better term, paid her dues. But Shoot. she was faithful in each assignment. And when you're faithful in a few things, God allows you to oversee uh, more responsibility. Yeah. And, and that's where she is.
0: Yeah. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm. Well, that's been your wife's story. It's 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 very evidently the story of, uh, of your uh, track in ministry. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Here's Pastor W. F. Snell, the new speaker and director of Breath of Life. I'm John Bradshaw. More of our conversation in just a moment. Brought to you by It Is Written.
1: Discover the powerful ways that God is part of the healing process. Go beyond what the media and popular trends say about healthcare, and learn from an expert what it really means to be healthy. In his book, The Ultimate Prescription, Dr. James L. Markham explains some of the common misconceptions about healthcare that are prevalent in our society today, how you can avoid them, and how to take care of the spiritual dimension of your health. To order The Ultimate Prescription, call 888-664-5573 or visit itiswritten.shop.
0: Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written, my very special guest, DeBliere Snell. He is the Speaker-Director of Breath of Life, a ministry which for many years has been impacting the world through ministry and evangelism. I want to ask you, what is it that excites you? We'll we'll talk about Breath of Life and the possibilities and your your global ministry in just a moment. But what is it that fires you up about ministry? What what are the things that you've done a a lot of, pastoral ministry, very successful pastoral ministry, True. very effective. What is it that gets you up in the
1: morning? It's a yeah, it's a ministry day today. Well, so I think, you know, one of the things that kind of drives me, you know, and, and when people talk about evangelism and, uh, and ministry, I think a lot of times we start that conversation with gifts or skill set. Mm-hmm. But I think in many ways, evangelism is experiential in this way. Because I think what drives you is this, when, when you can say on a heart level, that Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to you. Right. And, and G, like, again, I talked about, you know, some of the different cycles, you know, that kind of held our lives captive. Like I am an emancipated believer because of Jesus Christ. Um, he has radically changed my world. The life of my children will be radically different because of the presence of, of Jesus in my life. And so there is this inner, this, there's this innate passion, to see others have this experience in christ that i have had i know that you know urban communities are filled with young men young women who were probably headed down the same path or part of the same cycles that i was a part of and you know and so my work you know kind of what drives me is the idea of allowing or being a part of sharing this jesus that has radically shaped my life my worldview. With others uh, that need to know that there is a more excellent way, and it's amazing because so many of the things that we lament about the culture, and, and I'm not anti, like mental health. I'm you know I believe in social work, I believe in education, but there is nothing that radically changes the way a person thinks, you know, that radically impacts the heart, like being in a in a saved living relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, you know, the the drive is is very much personal. You know, I function out of the overflow of an experience that is still being lived out in real time. So that's that's what drives me. So you know, I tell people all the time, my alarm clock doesn't wake me up. My assignment wakes me up. There is somebody that through some vehicle, whether it's media, whether it's community impact things, whether it's you know an evangelistic revival, there is somebody that needs the experience that I'm living out day to day. Now, you are a
0: preacher. People who know you know that you preach your ministry is characterized by powerful preaching talk to me about not just preaching but also the role of and the power of the word of god but, but talk to me about what what preaching means to you first
1: yes yeah, so i you know i think preaching is i th- i just think it's the primary vehicle uh through which which the gospel is shared um i think it's really taking you know the word of god and just really putting it in a context so like you know they're just you know, the, the primary principle that drives my preaching is simplicity. Um, one of the things that we notice from Jesus Christ is that he, he taught using parables so that if you listen to me, one of the things that we're going to be intentional about is just kind of using whether it's illustrations or stories or just kind of personal experience so that the gospel doesn't remain too ethereal. We don't want it to be high minded. I think the gospel works in, in real time. I, I, I think it is our present help. And so we love to try to put it in an experiential context so that it's not just theological. People realize that it impacts the life. And so my goal is not for you to come away from a message saying, wow, that was deep. My goal is for you to come away and say, wow, that was clear. Um, It's not to say, wow, he's impressive, but to say, "Okay, I, I understand it. And to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ that it, it, it is attainable for all people. So, you know, I don't want you to see myself as this kind of transcendent person that has it all together, because at the end of the day, you know, we're all functioning out of our human brokenness, faultiness, frailties, um, and God's strength is perfected in, in our weakness. And so, you know, those are some of the things that kind of drive, you know, kind of my, my sermonic approach and and the way we look to communicate with people.
0: You know, I'm fine talking about the chiastic structure of the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yep. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I know a single person whose soul has been redeemed, whose life has been transformed by an academic presentation. Mm-hmm. You know, you may, you may scratch someone's academic itch, mm-hmm. but what, what I believe people need is a word that works mm-hmm. And that works in them and that somehow connects them with the power of God. Sure. You seem to figure that philosophy out.
1: Yeah. And I, I think because we all in the process of, of sermon study and development, you go through an academic process. Sure. But, you know, the goal is not necessarily to create an academic presentation. So, of course, we wanted to touch all levels of humanity, you know, both, of course, spiritually, emotionally and intellectually, but, you know, we wanted to cross all three gamuts because it's only when all three gamuts converge do people make decisions. Yeah. You know, we don't just make decisions intellectually, but we make them emotionally and spiritually. And I think when all of when all three components of a man of a man or a woman are, are reached, I think that's what moves people to the point where they want to transition from death to life, from being unchurched to church for or from moving from darkness to light.
0: Might have been one of the very first times I heard you preach was during a revival series as you're holding early in your ministry. So all the way, I mean, from, from, from day one, you've been about evangelism and the ministry of the word. What is it that excites you about evangelism? I mean, you can define evangelism however you want, but what, what fires you up about it?
1: Yeah. You know, so I think evangelism, I don't think it's just, I don't think it has one format. I don't think it has a single definition. I just think it's the experience of kind of telling those who are not persuaded or who have not made up their minds about Jesus Christ, about this, this this Jesus who saves, and letting them know that this same Jesus is in fact coming again. And so I think, you know, evangelism has a number of different portals. I think, you know, you and I will function in a world where it happens, you know, through a device or through a television. Uh, many times it's in person in a in a church or assembly hall of some sort. Um, there are people who do door-to-door evangelism. And so I think it's I think we're all We're all just kind of different branches from the same tree. Uh, But I think the objective is essentially the same. But I think, though, you know, for me, you know, so in, in, you know, in the in the church world, you know, there are meetings on top of meetings and boards and committees and budgets and all that stuff. But those are necessary. I don't even say the term evil. They're not necessary evils, but they are things that need to be done. They are means to a particular end, right? So that in the course of a week where you sit in meetings and do different things um, and you're organizing worship services and media, all that stuff is so that in some way, shape, or form, whether it's through a camera or whether I stand at the front aisle of a church and I give the gospel invitation. And John, there's something about when I see a man, a woman, a child, an aged person marching down the aisle, with the conviction of God heavy on their hearts, perhaps tears in their eyes. And and they say yes to Jesus. And you know that heaven is rejoicing. Somebody's name is being written in the book of life. That's right. No matter what I've gone through in that week, no matter what opposition challenge frustrations you face, that makes it all completely worth it. And then being able, especially in a pastoral context, to walk with them. Um, you know, seeing them get settled in the truth of God's word, seeing them go through the process of sanctification where they're overcoming and having victories and they're having to make decisions about this, that and a third and seeing them get settled in Christ. Honestly, it makes everything that I may not love doing worth it because those things are a means. Uh, they create the infrastructure for me to make that invitation, whether it's in person or whether it's through a camera. and And really, that's what it's all about um that's what revives me that's what energizes me that's what makes me say whatever was hard or whatever was unpleasant i'll do it 10 times over just to be a part of that experience with somebody's life
0: yeah you're talking about the goal being seeing somebody come to faith in christ Mm -hmm. now i want to say this constructively but it's not always the case that our churches or our church members maybe even ministers of the gospel but Mm -hmm. i I hope that's their exception it's not always the case Mm -hmm. That, that folks are looking to that mm-hmm. as the goal of ministry. Sure. How can we help people appreciate what ministry really adds up to? How, how, do you, how do you share that vision with others? The reason we're on this earth yeah. is to see that person come to faith in Christ.
1: Yeah. So I think that, you know, part of it is, you know, so I think institutions, churches, all groups experience, I guess, you know, what one writer calls mission drift meaning, you know, almost kind of like a a boat that is unanchored Mm -hmm. on a lake. Sure. Just over time, it just it just slowly begins to drift. The drift isn't sudden. It's not, you know, uh, uh, this great wave that moves it from point A to point B. But just by not being anchored, it just slowly drifts. And after a while, it's much further than the shore than it intended to be. Sure. And I think churches. Sometimes small groups, conferences experience this because I think, you know, somewhere along the line, you know, church became, you know, at one point when Christ you know gave birth to it, or even when we look at the early Adventist movement, like there was there was a very singular, you know, sense of what is important. Like there were some very singular values that revolved around evangelism, the preaching of the gospel, preparing our people for the coming of the Lord. But I think that, you know, we've experienced mission drift to where, you know, church has become a lot more insulated. It tends to be a little bit more about, you know, kind of our favorite music and our favorite food and kind of how we want to be fed as opposed to functioning as conduits of the gospel. We've kind of become collectors uh, of the gospel. And so I think that there's just got to be a radical shift of priority that I think starts with pastors. I think it begins with church leadership. Where, you know, kind of as the the one book says, you know, we've got to start with why we always start with what we're going to do. But I think if we understand why we are here, I think that determines the what. And I think that, you know, the priority, it doesn't just need to be revealed in our preaching. But I think it ought to show up in how our church budgets are constructed. Oh, amen to that. Um, I think it shows up in, you know, so in one of the things you will find out what a church values, you know, what a church values by what it celebrates and by what it grieves so that if you were to kind of sit around the dinner table and listen to what we celebrate, all right, are we celebrating when people are one to faith in Jesus Christ or are we only celebrating institutional things, meaning a a mortgage is burned or, you know, we had a great concert or we had a great uh, event or are the things that we grieve or do we only grieve when there is change that disrupts our preference or do we really grieve the fact that maybe our church hasn't won anyone to faith the entire year. Do we lament that? Do we lament the fact that, you know, perhaps, you know, our church, you know, it's specifically here in North America is is reaching a place where its growth is, you know, beginning to plateau. And, and in many ways is already plateaued. Like, mm. do we grieve those things? Do we, do we celebrate, you know, there's joy in heaven when one sinner repents. Do we rejoice over the things that Christ rejoices over? And do we grieve the things that that grieve our Lord and Savior? Like, you know, he came and died an awful, bloody sinner's death to redeem mankind. Like, in in other words, there's it's almost kind of like what we have here. and, And I'm not trying to go down the wrong path, but it's amazing that we have like more vaccine for COVID than we have people who are willing to to receive it. And it's amazing because Jesus has made for a provision for all mankind to be saved. Like, there's enough vaccine for this sin virus. That's right. But we don't have enough people willing to either distribute it. And in some ways, you know, we have people that have rejected it and turned their eyes away from it. Now, again, I'm not being pro or anti vaccine. Right, I understand. You're making, point, yeah. You're making but, a point here. You're making a point here. But the point is, there's is enough. But, you know, in some instances, we just don't have enough distribution centers or churches that are functioning as distribu- distribution centers for the gospel. We're collecting vaccine instead of distributing.
0: Mm, 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 that's right. How do we motivate people? What, what's the, what's the, what's the, what's the, I guess if you could, if you could boil it down and, and, and get that magic bullet, you'd, you'd sell the, yeah. the best selling book ever. Maybe we've, maybe we've covered that. Speaking of books. You're an author. You've written several books. Tell me, tell me about one or two of these books. It's going to help me understand where your heart is, where your burdens are.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think as we came through 2019, 2020, we had a number of major tensions everybody was dealing with from the pandemic. Uh, here in, of course, North America, we dealt with some really extreme racial tensions. Uh, we went through a very exhausting political season um, that just kind of really divided the country. And, and God really call, called me, you know, just caused my heart to ripen to a place where just everything was, was negative and man just had this sense of doom. And, and and God really pointed me to kind of the eternal promises that he's made to those who love him. So uh, in 2021 20, earlier uh, last year, we released a book called Almost Home, and it's a contemporary guide for heaven bound believers. And what it is really designed to do was to just kind of function as a literary portal away from all of the angst, all of the unrest. Um, toward the eternal promises that are made to those who love God and are longed, longing for his appearing. So, man, we deal with the motif of the second coming. Uh, we talk about the glories of heaven. Uh, we talk about some of the promises uh, that are made to the redeemed uh, to be free from a life of grief and lamentation. Um, you know, we talk about the fact that we'll live in a world where there's no more harm, no more. Uh, where, where humanity is constantly rivaling humanity, but we can function as one brotherhood. And then we kind of talk about the work that is to be done for the body of Christ so that the gospel can go to the four corners of the world so that, in fact, the, the end may come. And so, man, it was something that was really designed to uplift, uh, to really draw our attention to the eternal because I think the immediate was really overwhelming the faith uh, of many, even in the body of Christ, because you know, we're a function according to what we could see, as opposed to what was written, um, and and really to kind of say, hey, listen, the things that we're saying, man, that that are causing us to get discouraged and worn out and wearied. No, these things are the predicted and prophesied proofs. These are the evidences that our redemption is is drawing nigh. It. So That's it was it. something that we just really wanted to create. It reads in a very devotional way uh, to be you know soul food uh, for the people of God, but also You know, in a season where there was just so much loss, like, I mean, in 2020 and in 2021, man, you know, in my pastoral context, we we buried, unfortunately, so many people. And there was so much grief and so much pain in the land. And a big part of kind of, you know, what was driving me was just kind of, you know, empathizing with the hurt of others was just kind of to provide something that just kind of helped them to maneuver through this prolonged season of grief to help them know that there's hope beyond the grave uh, because Jesus has the keys of hell, death, and the grave. You're working on another book right now. Tell me about that. Oh yeah. I'm really excited about this. Uh, so we're, we're going to be releasing this in March of this year, 2022. Uh, it's called, <laughs> it's called getting unrealistic, getting unrealistic, getting unrealistic. All right. And it talks about how radical faith releases you from, you know, the power of life's limitations and what it's really designed to do. And it's designed to, to really challenge the, you know, the body of Christ to look at, you know, look at faith in, in the context of the scriptures. So one of the things that happens, I'm sure you've seen this whenever you're in a setting, sometimes in church where, you know, we're really having a developing a vision board or a bold prayer list, or we're really beginning to think big. There's always some <laughs> spreadsheet slave that's saying, hey, guys, this is good, but we've got to be realistic, Realistic, right? And, and a part of my pushback is saying, hey, guys, can you be a realist? And a person of faith at the same time, like, are those tensions equally yoked? Um, Because at the end of the day, even if I profess belief in God, I can't be a realist and profess belief in God, uh, a profess belief in a God that I've never seen or been able to detect through empirical means. Yeah. So, so me believing in God by nature makes me unrealistic. But so one of the things that we talk about is, you know, you can't marry faith and pragmatism. Sure. And, and so one of the things that we do talk about it is, and we talk about why some people are intimidated by faith, because sometimes we put faith in terms that seem irresponsible. So we say like, hey, you just step out there in faith. But that's not really how faith operates. What we talk about, because, you know, even as a man, like I live according to schedules and, and budgets and, you know, uh, I'm driven by structure. That's how my sure. life functions. But there are times where, where God is calling me. And the visions he's putting in my heart or the path he's instructing me to take absolutely collides with my budget, my spreadsheet, my schedule or my personal comfort. And I have to make a decision. Am I at that point when those things collide? Am I going to allow my life to be driven by the reality or am I going to function in faith? Because those two consistently collide so that, you know, some of the things and the stories that we espouse in the scripture it wasn't very realistic.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, At, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of Moses going to that yeah, Red Sea. Red
1: Sea, yeah.
0: We're going to open up the Red Sea. Mm. Moses could easily have turned to God and said, now let's, uh, let's I, be realistic.
1: Let's be realistic. Or when, when Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you on the water. On the water. That makes no sense. Like, that's right. And, but, but, but he responded to the words of Christ. It was the invitation that allowed him to bypass or override what was real or what was deemed real at possible at the time, because Jesus makes these amazing promises. He says, listen, all things are possible to them that believe Ephesians 3 20 says now unto him that is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. And so a part of the, the premise of the book is that we are living well below God's design for his people. Ellen White talks about, how higher than the highest human thought can conceive that's God's ideal for his children. That's right. And so it's a call away from just limited thinking. Well, I, you know, I I talk about how we've been hypnotized, you know, by the normal, how we don't even make room for the supernatural. And so in in it, you know, we talk about, you know, kind of encouraging the body of Christ to pray unrealistic prayers um, and to really begin to pray, bold prayers ellen white talks about how man god loves when we make the highest demands that's upon right. him
0: that's right i always and think of the story in the bible the, the prophet just strike the ground yes he strikes it three times mm-hmm. and the prophet was angry that's right indicating the displeasure of god mm-hmm. because the the the, the king yes. didn't
1: ask for enough Not Enough. that's right yeah. yeah and so that that's really what it is and so you know that's we, we it's a callback so when you read it it's 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 scripture heavy i mean it's scripture heavy because like even one of the things that we, we talk about in the book, we talk about how faith is not risky. And and we treat faith like it's this like it's a gamble. Well well, faith is not risky, it just draws certainty from the scriptures. There you go. And and if you really believe in the scriptures, wherever God is calling you to operate in faith, if you're operating according to promises He's made in the Scripture, that that's a risk averse behavior. Amen. Because God cannot lie. He, he is not like the son of man. We, he doesn't change his, change his mind. The Bible says in him, there is no variation or shadow of, shadow turning. of turning. So like, you know, faith is not risky. I'm not rolling the dice. No, you're not, not flipping a coin when I'm, when I'm operating according to the promises of the word. I'm just drawing certainty from the word, not my circumstance, not what can be measured, but the infallible promises of the word of God.
0: Fantastic. The book is called Unrealistic The author is the gentleman I'm speaking to, Pastor Deblia Snell, and you want to grab yourself a copy as quickly as you can. We will be back with more. We're going to talk about Breath of Life specifically right ahead. This is Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. More and more people are watching It Is Written TV. They're watching their favorite It Is Written programs, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. Watch It Is Written TV for free anytime on Roku, Apple TV, and at itiswritten.tv. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My guest is the speaker and director of Breath of Life, a media ministry. His name is Pastor W.S. S. Snell. All right, let's talk about Breath of Life specifically. How, as you, as you enter into this new role, this new phase of ministry, mm-hmm. what excites you about Breath of Life? What do you see are the, the possibilities and Breath of Life's special contribution in the Christian landscape?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, I think we're in a time now where media ministry is more critical than probably at any other juncture. And I think that, you know, because of the pandemic, where churches are not meeting, or even the way people go to work is a little bit different. They're not congregating in a common space. Right. So I think people find themselves now more than ever before, not, not locked, not just before a television screen, but before some type of device, a phone, an iPad, and/or on social media. And so basically kind of my 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 framework and how I'm looking at this is I'm seeing kind of breath of life as just a contemporary epistle. So like an epistle, you know, that was the the innovation for its age. It was how you allowed the gospel to be omnipresent so that, you know, when Paul or Peter wrote, you know, they wrote from one place, but they were able to send it out all over the world. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing essentially media is just functioning like a, a, a gospel epistle, a contemporary epistle that makes the gospel, you know, omnipresent where it's able to travel into platforms and venues, especially through the use of the Internet. Of course, television has been there for a little bit. But through social media, I think it creates an avenue uh, to be able to connect with people that it normally would not be able to get an audience with. And so I think that there are times where, you know, depending on social media certainly has evil components to it. But I think social media fundamentally, like media, it's it's not immoral. I right. think it, I think it's amoral. Sure. I think it takes on the quality or characteristics of whatever it's being used for. So I think, you know, there are tremendous opportunities to give, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the third angel, a unique audience uh, that it hasn't been able to have. Because I think we've run into different barriers, even with like house to house and door to door work. right? People who do that, they know that like, you know, a lot of neighborhoods that are gated and closed off and they have no solicitations. And so... There are certain limitations there, but where you know a door was closed, maybe in one venue, God has simply opened up another venue, or another way for us to be able to communicate His message uh, with those who who need it. Do you feel like you're going to have a, a special
0: emphasis in your role as as the the leader of Breath of Life? Mm-hmm. Do you, do, you, do I think it's unrealistic to say, well, what it's been, it's always going to be how we've done things. We're always going to do things. That's 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 not smart or healthy. Mm-hmm. What can people expect from from you, from your ministry? How, how are you going to frame things and, pr- and present things?
1: Sure, yeah. But I think, you know, one of the things that we'll be looking at doing is kind of like with, with kind of whenever you're inheriting a leadership platform, what you do is you build and you enlarge or you build and you enhance. And I think that's one of our objectives. So we want to continue in that strong tradition of evangelism with Breath of Life. Um, of course, I have a pastoral context. I'll be functioning as a senior pastor of the Oakwood University Church. There in Huntsville, but we'll be doing Breath of Life campaigns in Charlotte, North Carolina, on the island of Bermuda. Uh, We'll be conducting a meeting there in Huntsville, and we'll be doing a number of kind of reaping meetings or evangelistic trainings uh, all over throughout the course of the year. Uh, But one of the things that we want to do is as many people connect with Breath of Life, we want to make sure that Breath of Life is also making some major deposits and feeding our churches spiritually spiritually evangelistically, but also through equipping and training. So like one of the things that we're looking to do this year is we're looking to launch um, the Breath of Life Media School, uh, where, you know, the pandemic has kind of really shown that a lot of our smaller churches have struggled uh, to produce uh, meaningful uh, gospel content uh, during the season. So we want to really begin to kind of create a media school where we can connect with uh, media leaders uh, and pastors from small or, or rural towns. And be able to help reproduce some of the competencies and things we produce in Breath of Life, and help them to be able to develop that in their context, so that the gospel is not handcuffed just because maybe a lack of budget or maybe a lack of helps. But we want to craft a syllabus that helps that person in a small church or in a rural area to be able to produce um, gospel content that is going to impact uh, their neighborhood and their their society. Um, the other thing that we're going to be looking at doing is also, uh, developing a Breath of Life School of Evangelism, Mm -hmm. uh, where we want to be able to pour into pastors, lay evangelists, Bible workers, uh, and to help, you know, the things that we're able to do at Breath of Life, uh, again, be able to spread so that those things can happen all over. Uh, and so one of the things that we want to do is, is we want to kind of reproduce ourselves and make major deposits into the churches. So we want to create a sense that, you know, as they are supporting through viewership or whatever means, I want there to be a sense that we are drawing as much from Breath of Life as we are as we are contributing and, and supporting uh, the Breath of Life ministry. So those are some things that we have on the horizon, and then there are going to be some unique things that we're going to be doing to try to make sure uh, that we you know we we kind of age backwards a little, little bit. We have a a long standing uh, group of supporters uh, that are probably you know fifty and above. And so we're going to be making some direct appeals to our young adult community, broadening that base from Huntsville and and expanding from there uh, so that we can look to grow it younger. And we hope to really be able to produce um, some content that doesn't just look um, like, you know, I won't say traditional standing behind a pulpit, but really using some of our creativity to, you know, kind of package some things a little bit differently and 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 be able to connect with a broader and more diverse audience i think these are very exciting times for breath of life i i, yeah. I
0: think you have every reason to look into the future i think we all do because sure. we want to see breath of life thrive mm-hmm. uh continue to thrive i think we have every reason to look at the future and say these are good days mm-hmm. yep and i think they are you you could make the mistake of looking around and say oh these are challenging days yeah. and which people are restricted and mm-hmm. there's all kind of unrest and that well, All right.
1: Yeah, sure. You can focus on that. Mm-hmm. But don't you believe these are still these are great days for the gospel? Oh, certainly. Yeah. So I think like even all of these, the tensions, like even some of the unrests, the COVID-19, uh, the different things that we see. I think all of those things to a certain th- certain extent, they are they are ripening the hearts of people. I think that, you know, especially, you know, as we're coming out of the pandemic uh, or, or or as we're maneuvering in the pandemic. I think you know there are a lot of people that are wanting to know what do these things mean? Like, you know, as we just came through, you know, the you know, one year anniversary of the the riot at the Capitol, I think people are looking at these things and you know, whether it's COVID nineteen, the unrest, you know, the political strife, like people are are, are hungering. They're they're asking different questions that I think that we are in a in a unique, you know, position. To be able to provide man a prophetic understanding to line these realities up with the scriptures and be able to kind of point people with hope, not fear, toward an a predetermined end where Jesus Christ reigns along with those who have designed decided uh, to receive His grace and to to walk in that narrow path that He's laid out just for them.
0: So, how do you thread that needle? Someone going to come to you and say. I see problem a in society you can address that uh, problem politically or, or economically or this sure. or that it's not all wrong but we have been called to lift up christ sure. so how do we go about threading that needle mm-hmm. not ignoring current realities sure. but not getting bogged down in them either mm-hmm. and pointing people to the ultimate solution how do we how do we find that balance
1: yeah so i mean so i think you know we have a responsibility as we see a culture in decline Um, you know, to function as light and as salt. So I think that, you know, wherever there is tension, wherever there's pain and wherever there is unrest, I think the church of God ought to be present. I think we ought to be active. I think we ought to be vocal. Our, Our voice should be heard because I think one of the things I've seen is that, you know, like people are looking for direction. They're looking for leadership. And I think one of the things we that I'm seeing, especially in the pastoral context, I'm seeing people getting swept away with all types of uh kind of niche groups that have maybe religious overtones or connection, but they're not Bible rooted. It's simply because in sex sectors where there is pain, they are present sure. and we are not. So I think that as we are present in those spaces, you know, showing compassion, showing love, being light and being salt, I think it, it gives you an innate and organic audience with people that are asking these questions. And because there is a rapport, And there is a trust and there is a connectivity. You know, I think it creates a a scenario where you're not so much trying to balance or thread a needle. We have a rapport. We're connected. And so you're able to really communicate with with great conviction about what it is that the Bible is saying about today and the days that that lie ahead of us. And I think in addition to that, I think we put everything in the context of hope. I think even when we talk about, you know, whether it's prophecy or the last days, man, these, these are not sad, gloomy like That's right. messages. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it is the message of a soon coming savior who is going to triumph over evil and and all of, you know, the, the enemies of the cross, you know, the beast, you know, the false prophet, like, you know, like they're going to be, they're going to experience tumult, you know, the, the dragon is going to lose. And all of those that are that that are that are under Adam's curse are going to be liberated, you know, permanently, permanently. you know, when Jesus Christ comes again. And right. so, I just think if we put it in the context uh, of hope uh, and, and not just conspiracy or different things, I think we we will see a tremendous response—the response that you know Jesus, you know, prophesied would happen, um, you know, be, before he came before he came as the gospel floods the world.
0: We got just a few minutes. I don't know. what? What, what one last question can I leave this man with? Speak to me about a Bible story that speaks to you mm-hmm. and a story that you might share with somebody to speak to their heart.
1: Yeah. So I think, man, it, man, that's a loaded question. Isn't uh, it just, just trying it? to narrow it down? Yeah, to, it's so to, broad. It's not
0: entirely fair.
1: Um, well, I mean, I think there are a lot of, a lot of different stories and I'm, I'm kind of rolling through my head. So I think one, per, one in particular for me is the uh, story of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter. Uh, he's, a, he's a ruler of the synagogue. Um, I think one of the reasons it connects with me is because it actually is interwoven with the story of the woman with the issue of blood. So Jairus, it comes to Jesus. Jesus says, I'll come to your house. And then Jesus is interrupted because this woman touches the hem of his garment. And then all of a sudden the crowd amasses and then the movement stops. And then, you know, he has to tell this woman to come forward. And then the Bible says how she comes forward and she essentially tells her whole story. And all the while, Jairus is waiting like his daughter is at the point of death. That's right. And then there's somebody that comes and says, listen, hey, you know, your daughter's dead. Don't even trouble the teacher anymore. And it's amazing because his daughter dies while he was waiting on Jesus to come. Mm. And yet Jesus tells Jairus, he says, listen, don't be afraid. Just believe. And it's amazing because, like, you know, Jairus is in a position of watching someone else being healed while his daughter essentially perishes. But I think that Jesus has Jairus in that watching position for a reason. He sees this woman being healed. That wasn't designed to injure his faith. Watching this woman being blessed should have actually bolstered his faith. It should have kind of awakened him or reinforced this reality that there is a Christ who is able to do all things. And it's amazing because there are times where I think some of us may be in a watching position. We're seeing this person be blessed. We're seeing this happen for that person, but the watching period shouldn't injure your faith. It ought to actually multiply your faith to encourage you to know that the one thing about our God is that he doesn't run out. If he is able to take care of the needs of that person, He is more than able to supply each and every need that you have. And of course, Jesus comes and does an even greater miracle in that he revives her from the dead. And and it just kind of lets us know that even though the friends of Jairus were saying it's too late, don't bother the master anymore. It just shows us one thing, especially for somebody who is dealing with any kind of spiritual or medical or emotional or relational challenge. It's not over until God says it's over. He ultimately has the final say. And so you know, that's one of those stories that really connects with me, kind of just lets us know that while we're in the wait, we can still have faith. And even when it seems like things are completely defeated or deflated, it's not over till God says it's over. Powerful.
0: Love it. Hey, I appreciate you taking your time and being here. Great to catch up with you. Yes, sir. Good to see Excited my friend. Excited to know that God is, 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 is leading you and is leading Breath of Life. And I think collectively, we look forward to more great things at Breath of Life under your leadership. Uh, You've got some wonderful plans. These are exciting days. We can expect to see God shake up Huntsville. Yes. Shake up this country and shake up the world through the ministry of Breath of Life. And I mean that in a positive way. Shake them for Jesus mm-hmm. and introduce people to the risen Savior. Deblia Snell, thank you. This has been a blessing. Thank you so much for having me. Outstanding. And thank you for joining us. These are great days. I want to encourage you to look for Pastor Snell's books and grab them and read them. You will be blessed by them. And keep an eye on the ministry of Breath of Life. Watch up close and see what God is doing through that very, very exciting ministry. He is Pastor Debbie F. Snell. I'm John Bradshaw. This has been our conversation.